0: Well, this is Ed Stetzer Live, and this and every Saturday, we come to you with conversations about culture and mission and church and the good news of the gospel and how we live faithfully in tumultuous and turbulent times. So uh, so this is actually, uh, this show is actually pre-recorded because I'm, at this very moment, I'm sleeping in Australia. So, but uh, but happy to have, uh, well, I'm going to introduce my guests in just a second, but we've really got a, a, what I think is going to be a really interesting conversation, I really found their book, challenging and helpful. We'll walk through some of what that looks like, and uh, and lean into this conversation with you. But all that to say, I won't be able to take uh, phone calls today as we normally do. So, but anyway, let me introduce myself. I'm Ed Stetzer. I'm the executive director of the Wheaton College Billy Graham Center. We're actually recording this live at Billy Graham Hall at Wheaton College, where I have the privilege of serving as a dean and professor. But partly what I've been doing, you heard uh, last week and this week as well. I've actually got some guests. Who are from the Talbot School of Theology. As you know, at Moody Radio, Moody Radio is a ministry of Moody Bible Institute, which has Moody Theological Seminary and more. We, are, we love the opportunity to talk about people in Christian higher education. We're all in this together, from Wheaton to Moody Bible Institute to Biola University at Talbot. But I have actually um, made a change, and so I'm, I'm not there yet. But this is my secret or not-so-secret way, since I'm about to tell you on 150 outlets across the country, this is my not-so-secret way of getting to know some of the amazing faculty at the Talbot School of Theology, because I get to interview them for an hour about their books, their resources, what they're doing. And so we had uh, Uke Anazor on last time. We talked about uh, we talked about apathy. His book, Christianity Today, is book of the year. You can go to edstetzerlive.com, listen to that as well. And so today, on today's program, we actually have two more folks from uh, from T- the Talbot School of Theology. Let me introduce them uh, one at a time. First is Joanne J. Jung. She's a professor of biblical and theological studies and the associate dean of online education and faculty development. I'm very excited to learn more about what we do in faculty development, so every time I read a bio, I'm like, oh, we do that, so I'm excited about these things. And this is all, of course, at Talbot School of Theology at Biola University. She's the author of several books, including what we're going to talk about today, The Call to Follow, Hearing Jesus in a Culture Obsessed with Leadership. And Rick Langer is Professor of Biblical and theological studies, and the director of the Office for Integration of Faith and Learning at Baylor University. Turns out, we have an Office of Integration for Faith and Learning. I'm learning these things as we go. He's an ordained pastor with over 20 years of pastoral experience. Co-author also of several books, including "The Call to Follow: Hearing Jesus in a Culture Obsessed with Leadership." And I'm going to talk to them in both in just a moment. But let me—I mean, there are phrases. So I teach leadership at uh, Wheaton College, right? So I. Have a course I primarily do called Organizational and Change Leadership. And somewhere in that course, I quote, everything rises and falls on leadership, which is a kind of an axiom that comes from from John Maxwell. Um, Everything rises and falls on leadership is the way it goes and does it. And what is leadership and how, because it seems that leaders are super celebrated in our culture. Where does followership point into this and more? So we're going to jump into our conversation. Uh, again, I'm not taking calls today cuz we're we're pre-recorded, but I think an important conversation for us to have is to think some about what what leadership is, why it matters again, and where following fits in, it's the call to follow hearing Jesus in a culture obsessed with leadership. So let's start with Dr. Joanne Jung and lean in just a little bit. So right at the beginning, um you you talk about the obsession the culture has with leadership. And I want you to know that I think that that's probably true. I I'm also think that a lot of pastors and church leaders need to grow in their leadership, so, but we do seem to think that leadership is the answer to everything. What does a cultural obsession with leadership look like, and how does it manifest itself? Let's start there with uh, Joanne Jung? Joanne, tell us.
1: Oh, thank you. First of all, thank you, Ed, for having us. Um, you know, I, I, as we stated in the book, it's um, this culture of exalting leadership shows up everywhere, and it shows up in all age groups. Uh, we noted uh, Girl Scout cookies, and we notice college applications, uh, and of course, uh, the marketplace. And it seems as though um, in order to be successful, you must be a leader, or you must be a leader in order to be successful. And so, we we have this penchant, and this human penchant for uh, for leadership, and I think exacerbated in uh, the American culture. Um, so, I, I think that that's kind of part of our culture has just been so elevated. Uh, but I do have to say that uh, Rick and I, neither of us are anti-leadership. We're just right. pro-followership. And so I yeah, wanted to... That,
0: that's, no, that's a super important distinction. And you sense that as you read the book, is that there's a sense that um, you know, leadership is, is essential. I mean, you're, you're pretty clear about that. It's valued. It's even appreciated and respected. But you keep coming mm-hmm. back to what it means to be followers of Christ and how that... Fits into that. So, talk to me a little more about that, and then we'll go to Rick. But tell me a little more, Joanne, what you mean—the distinction between the two. Because I'm, I'm guessing, as a leader, I want to also be a follower of Christ. But sometimes things get lost. Tell us about that.
1: Oh, absolutely. You know, it's interesting. Um, we we move in and out of our callings uh, to be a leader, and so, uh, but we never move in and out of being called to be a faithful follower. Mm-hmm. So, as we are leading. I think it's imperative that we continue to be and to continue to grow in our followership. What is our followership quotient Um, when we are leading and when we are not leading, when we are a follower? And so those are some assessments that we need to look at. Um, uh, I've come across more and more examples of leaders who have been excellent followers when they are alone, uh, when it's lonely, you know, at the top. I've come across um, leaders who have experienced um, imposter syndrome. Well, how does then followership contribute to a healthy uh, measure of of leadership and our leadership gifts and skills? So it's yes. it's intertwined.
0: Yeah, so good, so helpful. So uh, followership is actually a word. You know, it may you may not have used that word a lot, but it's actually a word. I first heard the word followership when I was uh, training the uh, the chaplains, the, the U.S. Army chaplains. Uh, I was speaking at the Army Chief of Chaplains Training, and they talked about the importance of followership. And, I, you know, but it's not just something, though it obviously is important in a chain of command like the military, but it's also something that's important in the Christian life as well, Rick. Um, you, you talk some, well, you talk a lot about followership and what it means to intentionally be that kind of, well, follower who's engaging in in wise followership. Uh, unpack that a little bit for us. What does it look like to be that kind of follower of Jesus?
2: Well the first thing i probably want to say is the the value of the word followership is it helps you think of following as something rather than nothing as a real entity not a shadow or a vacuum or a failure to lead the idea that oh following really is a thing and so that was a big deal and i'm you know it isn't a word people use all the time but it's it's helpful to have that it's a bit like when you think about sabbath if you only think about Sabbath as a time you don't do anything, then Sabbath is kind of a black hole. But if you're actually saying, oh, I need to Sabbath, so to speak, I need to have a vision for what my rest might look like. So that was a big deal. And to unpack that then, what what is it that we're thinking with followership? I would say at the outset, it does include deference to a leader, you know, respect, deference, honoring a person who's in leadership over you, because a follower does require a leader in that sense, just by the logic of it. And I'd point out that one of the problems of thinking everything's all about leadership is then no one's a follower. And everybody's, in effect, the drum major, and no one's playing an instrument. So you have no sound. It's a kind of a crazy notion to think that everyone can be a, a leader, Um, So yeah, deference to a leader. The other thing that I think followers ought to bring to their task is an absolute zeal and passion for what they're doing. You might call it being all in, so to speak, that you're like, yep, I am committed, I bring my best, I wake up in the morning, I am on board And a big part of that is that you have an authentic ownership of the mission of the organization, the church, the entity that you're a part of, the place in which you're following, that you understand its mission and you are just absolutely on board with it. So you're leaning in, you're innovating, you're making things happen, um, but you realize You're so committed to this mission, you found out there's other people who are committed too. And the best way to get the mission done is to join an organization, which some one person is going to be leading, but everybody won't be. So you have to find your place as a follower in the midst of another set of people who are all together jointly kind of owning this mission. So it's really mission driven. It's zeal focused. It's all of those kind of things. And it's absolutely not passive or just, you know, go with the flow.
0: Yeah, but I think that's you're, you're hitting right on something I think is really essential because people do assume that, like you mentioned, sabbatical arrest is like blank space. This is not blank space. There's an intentionality in followership. I, we have to probably say that's slow because it sounds like fellowship, if you don't. <laughs> but there's an intentionality in followership. So, and all of us have to have it. You know, I'm 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 a follower in in, in certain contexts, and I'm a leader in others. And so, how do we embrace the the value of followership in our lives? Rick.
2: Yeah. So I think part of that is once you realize it's kind of a thing, you realize, oh, I can do this well, or I can do this poorly. Um, I, in other words, to just pick up some things identified, you know, showing deference to a leader. Well, you can do that by saying, oh, I'll just do whatever the leader does. But what good is that for the leader? You know, the, the leaders need some, 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 you know, kind of check and balance input. A lot of times leaders make decisions kind of in a boardroom, then you're as a follower out there implementing it and you realize, oh, this didn't work. And to passively say, I bet the leader doesn't care that it didn't work, I mean, why would you think that? So you need to have a sense of evaluating back to this thing of owning the mission. You're actively thinking, is this accomplishing what we need to do? If it isn't, how do I, you know, work the chain back up, or how can I, you know, change how I deliver it? It may be a thing that you can change yourself. But the point is you're viewing this as a thing that I can do my you know, deference well. I can bring my zeal to this mission well. I can understand the mission better or worse. And sometimes what you're really doing is understanding clearly how your job fits with the mission, because a lot of people lose their energy when they aren't seeing the, the fit. I, we tell a little bit in there about uh, there's a thing that people have studied called job crafting. And uh, some of the folks who first were studying this were doing a a survey in a hospital and they were talking to some of the janitorial staff about their job and found a huge difference between people who were engaged and enjoying their job and the ones who didn't like it. And the ones who did like their job were the ones who are saying, oh, I'm not really a janitor. I'm a person who helps heal people. (laughs) I work in a hospital. Now, the way I do that is by realizing the environment a person's in is enormously important. So I make sure I both clean it, but then these folks were also saying, oh, I also figure out who has people who visit them, who have people who don't. So the people who don't have visitors, I tend to go to them last so I can take my extra time and talk to them and find out what's going on. And so you suddenly realize this person is taking the minimal job they have to do cleaning the floor and then kind of expanding it on into the mission of the hospital and so they have a daily sense of fulfilling a mission, not just cleaning a floor.
0: So good, and so good, and so clear. Might I add as well. I think, I think, followership is something that's often uh, understated in our culture, underappreciated in our culture as well. So we're having a good conversation today with Rick Langer and Joanne Jung. Their new book is The Call to Follow, Hearing Jesus in a Culture Obsessed with Leadership. To remind you, this is a pre-recorded program, so we're not taking your calls today, but we've got fascinating conversations up ahead. So stay with us. The Call to Follow, Hearing Jesus in a Culture Obsessed with Leadership. We'll continue our conversation in just a moment. Politics brings more division than ever, and social media is moving many to be less social and more critical. Those with Christian views are also often being dismissed. Well, what if the rise of secularism, though, is good news for the church? Throughout history, these times of decline traditionally precede powerful spiritual renewal, even revival. You need to read Mark Sayer's book, Reappearing Church, The Hopeful Renewal in the Rise of Our Post-Christian Culture. Get a copy of Reappearing Church today at MoodyPublishers.com. Okay, we're back. It's Stetzer Live pre-recorded show. Gives us more time to go deep with some of our guests. We have two guests today, Joanne Jung and Rick Langer. They both serve at uh, Talbot's, the Talbot School of Theology uh, at Biola University. Looking forward to serving alongside and encouraging them as the new dean there in starting in July. Uh, so getting to know them by asking them a whole bunch of questions about their book, and also hopefully you're benefiting as well. Um, so Joanne, I want to kind of look to some, you used a lot of biblical examples and some examples from history, but let's start with the biblical examples as well, because sometimes uh, followers are, in our culture, seen as in a negative light. It's more, you know, weak and uh, passive, yet biblically we have a different story. Unpack some of the biblical teaching and examples that you use there as well.
1: Oh, it's really funny. Um, uh, I was wrestling with uh, a passage for quite a while, uh, about Jesus doing only what he saw the Father doing. And I think at that point I woke up enough courage to say, hey, Rick, I, I think Jesus was a follower. And so together, uh, um, you know, I mentioned that through Rick and Rick just took it, ran with it, um, explored more and more and more deeply the Gospel of John. And so we see uh, passage after passage of Jesus following the Father. And therefore, you know, opening up more of the New Testament, um, those who would follow Jesus and those who would follow those. Um, and so you see this cascade of followers. And uh, so, so the examples are all throughout Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament, of, of followers.
0: Yeah. And, and yet, um, today, the, even the follower, I mean, literally disciples, follower, of, you know, and, and what mm-hmm. we're learning from others. Yet today kind of downplayed. So so how do you think, from the teachings of Scripture, we can elevate that? You do that some of the book. How, how can we elevate the role and importance of follower look, followers looking to the scriptural teaching to do that?
1: I think there are a couple of different ways. One is um, being able to see the perks of following, uh, hmm. certainly the benefits uh, here and uh, uh, at the end. Um, but I think the perks of following, when we know that we're pleasing the Father, so that should be a Christian's ultimate goal, pleasing the Father. Well, how do we do that? Um, it is to follow well. Well, what does that then look like? It is being so sensitive to God's Spirit, who is the direct agent in our transformation. He's the one responsible, or they all want trinity is, uh, but he's the direct agent for our transformation in, in becoming more and more like Christ. So it would it makes sense then to stay in tune with what the Spirit is is doing and saying, and he will always be consistent with his with God's word. So I think mm-hmm. that's one of the first marks of how, how do we elevate followership is get to know who God is, get to know his character, get to know how his spirit works uh, uh, individually in our lives and corporately. I think that's that's important too. Uh, we're not Lone Rangers, we are in this together, certainly the church and, and uh, a community of believers. So perks and benefits uh, are a way of elevating um, followership and just exploring more and more how Jesus followed and the manner in which he followed. I think that's really key, and we get all those from from Scripture.
0: Okay. So we look to Scripture, um, and also, too, in the book, you look to history. So Rick, I'd like to see if you can kind of give us some historic examples where followership matters.
2: Yeah, one of the things that was interesting when we were thinking about this was was that issue of going who who are the models that you would point to for followership, and I had two of them. I had kind of this experience in church where they were singing the uh, the chorus, you know, uh, you know, though none go with me, still I will follow. It's you know kind of a classic following song. And I tend to think about that as kind of the march the martyr marching off to, you know, his or her doom. And so you you get this one weird version is this kind of hyper-inflated. Wow, the follower is the martyr who walks in and is slain by the lion, and they say some famous last word, and we quote it for the next 1800 years. <laughs> and of course, they are followers. I mean, I, I won't dispute that for a minute. Um, they certainly didn't get into that by some leadership choice, right? It was simply their fierce determination to follow Jesus that led them to that. But I realized as I was thinking about that, I go, but how likely am I to end up in the Colosseum as, as a menu item for the local lion? It just you know, it isn't reality. So I, I thought of, um, well, the, the story that I tell in the book is about a guy named Nicholas Herman, who, um, you know, that's not a, a big uh, everyday name in our thinking. But he was a guy who'd been wounded in, in battle. Poor guy, gone off, joined the, the military to get some money. It's in the 1600s. He's wounded in battle, comes back Not really fit for doing anything, but kind of being a doorman for some local, you know, kind of low grade, uh, you know, merchant. And uh, one day he has this kind of spiritual experience and he decides, you know what, instead of doing this doorman thing, I'm going to sign up for the monastery, not to be a monk, he he wasn't going to be ordained or anything, he just was going to serve in the monastery doing, as it turned out, kitchen work that allowed the actual monks to carry on their mission the real important thing which was you know praying and uh, you know doing their their regular services of chant and prayer and things like that that are the point of the monastery so he just shows up at the monastery he's doing this and he's in the kitchen he's really never liked kitchens he's not a great cook and then as part of being in charge of the the kitchen he has to go out and get like the cask of wine and other things that they're doing and so he tells this terrible story of him uh, you know, having to roll over these casts of wine in the boat as he's trying to get back up the river because he can't walk because he's lame. So, yeah, reading this description is just terrible. But he had this incredible spirit about him. So, in the kitchen, he just seemed to do to delight. People would ask him why. So, he'd kind of give, you know, reflections and all of this. And, bottom line is, he spent his whole life there in the kitchen, he died. But upon his death, people thought, you know, there was a lot of wisdom in this guy. So they collected a lot of his sayings, put it together into a book that probably many of us have read, which is called Practicing the Presence of God by Brother Lawrence. So this guy, you know, Nicholas Herman, changed his name upon entering the monastery to uh, Brother Lawrence of the resurrection. And that's how we know him. But the weird thing was that he lived and died in the kitchen. He Hmm. never became uh, the hero of the Faith Hall of Fame or a master of the devotional life uh, in terms of being recognized at stuff. His job, his function, whatever you want to call it, was like the ultimate kind of low grade followership thing. You know, he just worked in the kitchen. Hmm. But on the other hand, the life. You know, the the 400 years later, this book is still in print. I think I counted it up. It was like 500 different editions. I don't know about you, Ed, but if any of my books go through 500 (laughs) different editions, I'm going to be a pretty happy dude. But the funny thing is he didn't even write the book. You know, these are collected by other people later and all of that. And all he did was just completely lean in and own the job that he had in the kitchen and say, I want to find Jesus in the middle of my job every day, every moment, everywhere I turn, everything I see I want to see it in light of and in relationship to the person of Jesus Christ. And wow, there's a model that all of us can follow, right? But it never made him a leader. He never became the abbot in charge of the you know monastery or anything. He was just in the kitchen.
0: Yeah, embracing the mundane you know, just seems to be a recurring theme that some of us people don't want to do today. Embracing the mundane in our spiritual lives, embracing the mundane of just... Showing up and doing those things that make, uh, well, make a difference, often make an eternal difference, but they don't necessarily make you uh, well known. And I think that's a, that's a beautiful reality. Um, you want to say more, Rick? Go ahead.
2: Well, yeah, I, just, I, I think you're exactly right. We, we, I think we failed to understand that for most of us, the key to an extraordinary life is our ordinary life do we really embrace our ordinary life as a calling from God? Do we have a sense of mission about it? And we put into the book kind of a study guide that's not so much a regular conversation study guide, but is a thing that helps you think through kind of the different aspects of your calling. And it may be the fact that right now I'm a soccer mom driving my kids around all these things. It may be that you're working in in a kitchen like Brother Lawrence. It could be that you have a you know, a, a, a wife or a, a husband who's got dementia and you're caring for them, all these kind of ordinary life things to just look at those things and say, okay, this is a calling from God. What is it that I can do? How can I do this in a way that glorifies and honors Jesus? How can I in effect find and cultivate meaning in this situation? Because apparently God's appointed me to be there. And he said, you know, I I saw every one of your days before any one of them came to pass. And I decided that, uh, you know, the, the book of your days was worth publishing, so I pushed the button and out you came. But that book included some pretty mundane moments, so let's see if we can make sense of those in the grand arc of the narrative of your personal life as it relates to the, you know, narrative of the kingdom.
0: Hmm. So good, so good. Joanne, we've got about a minute left, and then we're going to take a, a, a quick moment, and then we'll come right back. But in that minute, can you talk to us a little bit about, introduce the idea of how leadership can be an idol, and then we'll come back to that more in just a minute. Talk to us a little bit about that
1: oh, you know, if uh, anything can be an idol, but when leadership is an idol and it's um, promoted in culture, it becomes something that we sacrifice for. We worship and it occupies so much of our time. And the interesting thing about leadership as an idol is it impacts then our families, our communities, our churches, uh, and of course, our um, our workplaces and marketplaces. Um, so it's, as with any idol, it displaces the place where God should be, and so our idols will occupy our finances, our uh, our attention, our affections, and they just get diverted. Having that, uh, having leadership as an idol cannot help but result in fractured relationships. And when you think about what God desires for us. A right relationship with him and right relationships with other people having leadership as an idol fractures those things and it's uh and so we need a reckoning
0: Mm, a reckoning strong words strong words we're going to talk more about that in just a moment as well we're having a conversation about about leadership and followership we're talking to rick langer and Joanne Jung, they're both at the Talbot School of Theology, have co-written a book, The Call to Follow, Hearing Jesus in a Culture Obsessed with Leadership. We want to talk what that looks like and how we might live differently, how we might exercise wise practices of followership as well. This is a pre-recorded episode, so we're not taking your calls, but stay with us because we've got some important conversations going a little deeper with the authors as we continue in just a moment with Ed Stetzer Live. Hey, we're back at Stetzer Live. Uh, of course, I'm Ed Stetzer, and this is a pre-recorded episode. And I do—I am aware of the irony of a program named Ed Stetzer Live being pre-recorded. So I just wanted to know—you don't have to like tweet me that. I get the irony of it, but I'm actually the time you're listening to this, I am sleeping in Australia. I'm trying to remember where I'll be. I think I'll be in Sydney. Yeah, I'll be—I'll be in Sydney preaching at uh, the oldest Anglican parish there in Australia this this weekend. Um, they call it. Uh, uh, the uh, Church, Church Hill, Church Hill Anglican. It's a series of parishes there in downtown Sydney. So if you're listening via online, come on over um, and we'd love to see you there. But but at this moment, I'm sleeping, you're listening, and we're having a great conversation to help serve you and thinking about the issue of followership. And just before we we took a break, I uh, I was asked Joanne a little bit because I really was struck by. The language that they use in the book. Again, the title of the book is uh, "The Call to Follow: Hearing Jesus in a Culture Obsessed with Leadership." They they warn about the idolatry of leadership. Now, again, keeping in mind, I teach leadership. I uh, I think leadership, and they think leadership is essential and important. But when it's everything, it becomes problematic. And I'm, you know, sort of walking through as I'm leaving Wheaton College. Um, with folks that I've had the privilege of leading and building, uh, you know, uh, building some structures and systems together, um, you know, I'm leaving with wonderful relationship with fellow followers of Jesus. Yet I've also seen situations where leaders left a trail of relational destruction or organizational destruction and 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 more. So how do we how do we think about leadership not becoming an idol in a culture where it seems to be. Rick, let's go to you and have you pick up some of the themes about idolatry leadership and how we should address it.
2: Yeah, one of the interesting things about the term idolatry that is really helpful when thinking about this is when you think of an idol, at least for me, kind of the first thing I think of is people sacrificing to an idol, um, which like you're not supposed to do, just to be clear on that point. We're against it. And the... (laughs) Yeah. So so I'm thinking, wow, with the leadership as an idol, to stop and think, what, what are the sacrifices people make to become a leader? And then why do they make them? Why is it that that is so valuable to them? They'll sacrifice these other things kind of on the altar of leadership, so to speak. And I think there's obvious things that you see people doing where they become workaholics. They, they uh, you know, just every single thing has to be attached to whatever their context in which they're leading is because they can't, You know, they can't think of letting go of that. And so other callings that they may have on their life, you know, most of us have multiple callings. You're not, you don't just have a job. You have a spouse, you have a family, you have a community, you have a church. There's so many different things that God calls you to that the thing we tend to do is to take all of our other things and drop it on the altar of the one area of our most significant leadership and all those other things become sacrificed there. And that's really tragic. And I don't think that's, that's pleasing to God. Um, The other thing that I've noticed is you find people who are like perfectly content and actually feeling a real sense of meaning and significance in the job they're currently doing, but then they're challenged to become, you know, lead in some other area. And I do want to say I'm not opposed to anyone ever making that change, but sometimes people feel like I have to. In fact, I talked to someone who uh, was in a situation where they were kind of in a young leaders meeting and they brought in a person who was talking about their 27 year career at this university they were at and the importance of whenever you get an opportunity to advance you should take it and the person asked you know, what if I just love my job and I'm sure he says no you should you're kind of obliged to take the next leadership thing because otherwise you're kind of checking out of your mission." And I thought, that's like a formula for both unhappy people and lousy leaders. (laughs) Uh, And part of this, I learned this from my dad. He was a research scientist growing up. And, you know, he was the happiest guy in the world working in the lab. That's what he did. And I never really thought about it because dad loved his job and it was all fine. It wasn't, you know, some toxic thing for our family or whatever, he happily worked away. But I later thought, you know, Dad never climbed the ladder. He began as a, you know, in the lab researcher. He never became the director of the lab or all this other sort of stuff. And I was like, you know, I didn't really think about it, but I kind of noticed it mentally. Well, a couple of years later, I'm actually, I've graduated as an undergraduate. I'm going to seminary and my put me through seminary job was actually working in a research lab. I was a chemistry major as an undergraduate. And I, I began to see the person who was in charge of the research lab. And the bottom line is he was never in the lab. He was always out at board meetings. He was out raising money. He'd be out schmoozing people. We got this really fancy, you know, $100,000 machine because of somebody that he worked with. And that was what he was always doing. He was never doing the science. He was never doing the hands-on research. He was like one level above all of that. And I realized my dad would have absolutely hated that job because he'd end up doing all the things he didn't like. And by the way, he wouldn't have been great at. But man, put him in the lab. He was awesome. He'd invent things. He has patents, you know, and all this kind of stuff. He was super at the actual hands-on doing of it. And so I had this kind of sick feeling that as we idolize leadership, we end up kind of recruiting or having those rise to the top who have the biggest craving for leadership but not, are not actually the people who are most gifted or God's really calling to lead. So I, I worry about that. And I think idolatry is kind of a good way to think about how we get into that that trouble.
0: Yeah, no, I think so too. And I really found that part helpful and challenging. Because again, I, I want people listening to not think, because it wouldn't be correct to think, even as you describe leadership, it's you're not like anti-leaders or leadership at all. But in a culture that's very driven by that, when they take something that's a good thing like leadership and make it an ultimate thing where everything else is sort of pushed to the side and devalued, then, well, there are multiple consequences that flow, flow from that. So the idolatry thing I think is helpful. Now, let's talk some, though, about – I mean we talked about idolatry as a challenge. What about followership when leadership is not going well? I, I've, I've been in situations <laughs> like that um, The, uh, you know, I've I've written, I wrote a series that got pretty widely read because I think it just related to a lot of people. It was called, you know, Surviving Unhealthy Christian Organizations. And a lot of times, not always, (laughs) sometimes it's structural, but sometimes it's a leader or leaders. So Joanne, first to you, I want to talk a little bit about how do I engage in faithful followership when um, maybe there are problems in the leadership itself?
1: Uh think about, and I think about two kinds of, two relationships, and that's our vertical relationship with God and our horizontal relationship with others. And, you know, as I already stated, we, we uh, hold to that vertical relationship being really strong, being attuned to God, uh, attuned to God's spirit. And, and it ties in then with um, being led by God when he says, when you see something, say something. And having that God-given courage to say something. Um and that's really critical. I think so. So many of our problems uh, when we have this leadership followership kind of collide, colliding is we fail to say anything. Uh, we are fearful, um, and I, I think that's really critical to to say. Well, you know, the Lord is giving me courage to just say something in a conversation, in a trusted relationship, or phrasing it in the way, uh, phrasing it in the form of a question. Help me understand. Help me understand this, because I I don't. Uh, Would you help me understand this?" Um, And and those kinds of conversations, starting very small, uh, perhaps with a coworker or uh, with a trusted friend. Uh, But there are, of course, situations where they are so dire that the Lord will lead you out uh, of a given situation. It's not something that we need to uh, feel like it's our our martyrdom that needs to, um, to kick in. But, you know, the Lord oftentimes will lead us out of a situation. Um, I've, I've been in a couple of situations where I've seen people talked out of one situation, placed in another, uh, kicking and screaming all the way, come to find. that's exactly what God wanted to do, to remove them so that they would be spared some of the future problems that this organization or church or um, uh, workplace would
0: have caused them to experience. So, yeah. Yeah. So let, let me come back to that too, because I think one of the realities is is there is there's unhealthy or toxic even leadership, and then there's just sometimes you know a lot of people who love Jesus or listen to this program and they go to a church with their pastors, maybe not particularly gifted in in leadership or maybe hasn't been trained. I think I think most people can receive training and and grow in that area, but. um but you know, my experience has been is that that good leadership is sometimes maybe hard in um, for pastors and leaders to 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 have the opportunity to learn because we just we we want to teach the Bible, we want to love people, and then leadership is this skill or this discipline that maybe we're not as familiar with. Um, so what what would we do then if you know we want to have followership, but there's not like bad or bad motives or or bad, um, you know, or, or toxic leadership. And so I'm going to come back to, to you, Joanne, and then I'm going to have Rick weigh in as well. So what would you say with just, there's not a lot of leadership in my church, but they love Jesus, and I'm with them, and how do I stay in that followership journey as well? First, Joanne, and then we'll
1: have Rick comment. Yeah, you know, I'd love to, I'd love for folks to say, how can I be a part? How can I help? Um, I, I don't think in terms of, uh, of pastors, you know, their congregants say, asking, how can I help? Where can I best serve? Um, I, I think we're kind of void in that in many areas, um, but how can I help? Uh, but the pastor too has to create a, a culture and environment where those kinds of questions are welcomed. So it's a mutual type of um, uh, of welcoming uh, one another to those questions and, and to that kind of involvement. Um, yeah, Rick.
2: Yeah. One of the things that I think we've done as a culture, we've kind of become infatuated with strength finder tests and spiritual gifts tests that create sort of a mindset that the thing I'm supposed to do with the church is to present my treasured gift and have them say, oh, this is so wonderful. Let me find a place where you can use it, as opposed to present yourself to the church to say, how can I be used? Um, And I think God gifts us oftentimes for the situation we're in. I think we think somehow we have a magic permanent gift. I think God gives us gifts as we need them oftentimes for the sake of what he's called us and who he's called us to serve. And it's uncanny. You know, people say, I don't have the gift of mercy, but what if mercy is needed? I don't have the gift of service, but what if service is needed? And then the crazy thing that often happens is you begin doing something that you didn't really think was gifted, but it was really needed. And suddenly you find joy, delight, you know, it it can actually turn out way better. But there's kind of a self-servingness to a lot of the attitude we bring to being a follower in a church, so to speak. We're asking, how is the church meeting my need? Do I get to find meaningful expression of my gift? And I'd hate to ignore that. But again, it's this issue of I don't know that that's the only thing or even always the most important
0: Fascinating. We're going to continue our conversation in just a moment. And again, just to remind you, this is a pre-recorded episode. uh, But we're talking about the idea of followership from the book The Call to Follow, Hearing Jesus in a Culture Obsessed with Leadership here on Ed Stetzer Live, Moody Radio. We're going to continue our conversation with Rick Langer and Joanne Jung in just a moment on The Call to Follow. Hey, we're back. Ed Setzer live. Final segment. Joanne Jung and Rick Langer are my guests. They are professors at the Talbot School of Theology. My soon-to-be home in partnering with them and encouraging our team there at Talbot. Uh, and uh, this is a pre-recorded show because I'm, as I mentioned, I'm in Australia while you're listening to this, and it's in the middle of the night. Um, okay, so. Um, we, throughout the Bible, and they address in the book uh, lots, of, lots of times, lots of opportunities. In, in The Call to Follow, the name of the book is The Call to Follow, Hearing Jesus in a Culture Obsessed with Leadership. They go to the biblical text often, and we see a lot of parables about masters and servants. Rick, talk to us about those. How do those relate to us 2,000 years later?
2: One of the things that's interesting to me in in those parables, number one, is how thematic that is for parables. I mean, you can hardly flip through a page of the gospel, well, when Jesus is giving parables, that you don't find one of these parables about being a, a master and a servant. And I, I think one of the things that intrigues me about it is that Jesus has these people doing everything. Some of these guys seem to be like they're in charge of massive amounts of money. Some of these guys are just the guys who are tending the door make sure the door's ready when the bridegroom comes back, you know, just don't fall asleep. And so you have these guys who have this huge variety of tasks that they've been appointed to by their master. In all of those cases though, it matters to the master. And it matters enough that when he comes back, there's kind of an official accounting session. <laughs> mm-hmm. How did you do with what I trusted you? And one guy only got one talent. One guy got two. One guy got five. One guy got ten. Whatever the you know parables tells, but it's like, look, whatever you got, you you better have the sense of, oh my, I have I have an accountability. I'm going to have to give a report on what I've done with this. And one of my fears, we've talked a lot about this kind of vision for leadership and absence of a vision for followership. So one of the things I worry about is people probably naturally think about I'm going to give an accountability to Jesus, an account to Jesus for how I've led this organization or led this department or led my family, whatever the the leadership context is. But in the followership context, you feel like, oh, well, that's kind of like my throw in job. That's my hood ornament. That's my decoration. But it doesn't really matter. Jesus won't care. And I I tell you, as I look through those parables, I'm like, I would hate to have someone have that viewpoint. (laughs) Mm. That that sense of he has appointed us in many places to be a follower, follower, follow in a way that Jesus could ask you out, hey, I made you a guy who was a teacher assistant in your daughter's third grade class to help out their teacher. How do you do with that? Mm. And to think, that Jesus would actually care, that he'd noticed, that perhaps he'd appointed you to that task. I don't think we have imagination for that. And I kind of have this anxiety. I was therefore showing up to Judgment Day, and you feel like, Oh, you didn't prepare for the exam. Well, (laughs) you studied only this one thing, but there's going to be 10 items on this test, you know? So I I want people to kind of, not not the fear part of that, but the sense of the ownership of this is like, oh, this somehow mattered to Jesus to give it to me. I better have a vision for what he wanted. And then I better go do that so that I could stand before him and hear the wonderful phrase, well done, thou good and faithful servant.
0: Yeah, I mean, just so helpful to talk about in terms of being a faithful steward of what we have, uh, to, to, to lead, to follow, whatever it is God's called us in that space and place. A lot of that, of course, has to do with how we make... Uh, personal priorities and personal decisions and, and seek to grow in our sensitivity to the Lord, obedience to Him, when maybe the frenetic pace of the world in which we live has kind of caught us up in other things. So followership, which all of us are called to, leaders are called to followership, all of us are called to followership, does require a spiritual focus in our lives. Joanne, talk to us a little bit about that in a world where so much noise and so much distraction, how does one grow sensitive and walk in obedience?
1: Oh, yeah, you're absolutely right. So much noise, so much distraction in our world. Uh, So that intentionality has to include moments of and perhaps extended times of just being silent before God, being silent and being alone with him. And one of the things that people fear most uh, about that is, oh, you know, I'm I'm afraid of what God will do. You know, I'm afraid of what God will say to me. But I, I often come back with, then do you know the God of the Bible? Because you do not need to fear. In that time of silence and solitude, it's a time of communing with Him. It's a time of listening to Him. And for us, it's, it's a time of, of, of confession. Saying, hey, you know what? I, I really screwed up here. And hearing God say, I know, but you're still mine. Hmm. Let's do this together. Hmm. It also cultivates a, a spirit of gratitude, of being more alert of people around you, events that are happening, and even in creation, being alert to things about us. Um, the psalmist says in 33, Psalm 33, 5, that we are immersed in a world of God's chesed, His covenant faithfulness, faithful love. And if we are immersed in that kind of world, why do we not see it? So to grow sensitive to God, to grow obedient to Him, means to have these conversations with Him ongoing conversations we can pick up at at any time and anywhere. I think one of the questions we often need to ask, and I don't think we ask it often enough is God, what is your perspective? His perspective will always reflect his word, but how do we cultivate that and incorporate that into our conversations? God, what is your perspective on this coworker that I'm not getting along with very well? God, what is your perspective with this teenager who insists on rebelling? God, what is your perspective when my marriage is having a challenge, this challenge? God, what is your perspective when I'm a single mom and I can't I feel I can't do this? Being a good follower is being sensitive to God's spirit and letting him lead because ultimately we want to follow him.
0: So, and I think that's a key thing is that, um, and it's kind of the key throughout the book as well. I mean, this is not something I'm coming up with, but throughout the book in The Call to Follow, the name of the book, The Call to Follow, Hearing Jesus in a Culture Obsessed with Leadership, has kind of pointed us to over and over again uh, what it means to follow Jesus in the midst of all these other things, idols of leadership or, or really... A view of seeing rest in a negative way. It's a super helpful book. You can tell why I'm excited about joining the team there at the Talbot School of Theology. So special thanks to uh, Joanne Jung and to Rick Langer for coming on the program today. Thanks to you for hanging with us as well and, and listening through. We get to go a little deeper when we have a pre-recorded episode, so thanks for listening and hopefully being encouraged as well. Let me thank my team, uh, my producer, Karen Hendron, my engineer, Courtney Young, Whole team there works at Moody Radio to make this happen as well. Today To hear today's program again, or any of the programs, go to edstetzerlive.com or the Moody Radio app. Actually, you can get to the Moody Radio app, just go to edstetzerlive.com. And there you can click through, subscribe as a podcast, listen to this whenever you want to. Maybe you're listening on Saturday, but you can also listen on Tuesday. And as always, you can connect with us through Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all at edstetzerlive. Find out what's coming up and more. Karen does a great job keeping us up to date there. And remember that Ed Stetzer Live is a production of Moody Radio, and Moody Radio is a ministry of Moody Bible Institute. So thanks thanks for listening, and walk in the journey as a follower of Jesus, and followership really does matter. Thanks for listening.